everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Salt Lake 2002 Retrospective Podcast, a back-of-house look at the planning and delivery of the Salt Lake 2002 Olympic Winter and Paralympic Winter Games, as told by the very people who organized them. I'm Christian Napier, and today we are joined by the legendary announcer, Peter Graves, the voice of the Salt Lake 2002 opening and closing ceremonies and various competitions during the Games. And honestly, this is a bit intimidating because I'm dealing with a legendary announcer and I'm just some schmo doing a podcast, but we're going to make it through. Peter, thanks so much for joining. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. It's great to be uh, with you today and uh, I've enjoyed the whole series, bringing back a lot of memories and of course with a lot of friends. uh, There's a lot of bonding, as you know, when you work together in the trenches on an Olympic Games. It's a it's an intense but wonderful and and beautiful experience. Um, so it it's been great to relive it, and uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Well, the pleasure is all mine, and the pleasure is also the pleasure of the listeners that get to hear the stories that you're going to share with us in the next hour or so. But before we start into the Salt Lake Games, you've got a lot of sports stuff on your back wall. Uh, why don't you tell us about where you're at? <laughs> I'm in my office in uh, the little town of Thetford, Vermont, uh, population uh, about 3,000. We're near, uh, and most of you will know this, Hanover, New Hampshire, uh, about 10 miles away. Uh, That's the home of Dartmouth College, uh, where my wife is the uh, director of the ski team there. Uh, But yeah, I've got some memorabilia over my shoulder, uh, a bib from the Salt Lake Games, um, uh, some nice lithographs here. And, uh, you know, basically uh, an example of a career that has been very full and and wonderfully rich uh, because of announcing and, and my love of winter sport. So uh, uh, they all have a memory, just like an Olympic pin. You know, uh, I, I probably have more than three or 4,000 pins, seriously, from 11, 11 games. And just about every one, I can remember who I traded with uh, and conjure up a, a face of somebody who, you know, we each made each other's day. Pin trading is a wonderful thing, you know, and, and, I I often say, Christian, that um, the Olympics is really like a public trust. Um, In in a way, we all own it and we all care about it. And uh, it is bigger than any of us as individuals. So when we come together and we have these experiences, whether it be spectators or certainly for the athletes for whom it's all about, but for all of us, it's a it's a deeply profound and and moving experience. All right. Well, I got to tell you, I'm happy that you're joining us from the Vermont Museum of Sports History. I think <laughs> it's fantastic. You. I love the pins. Three to four thousand pins. I've got two questions. Number one, where do you keep all the pins? And then number two, out of all those pins, do you have a particular favorite? Um. So a lot of them are in shoe boxes and uh just collecting dust there i have three pin hats which uh 
really maybe not quite the highest level, but these are really nice pins and collectibles. Um, and then I have on on uh, velvet or felt um, the really best pins that I don't want to bring out and lose. But, um, you know, going back to my first games in 80, I was a cross-country commentator for ABC in Lake Placid. And um, I began to start uh, collecting pins there. And while we all got the people that were on the staff of ABC got a number of pins to share or to use as bribery sometimes if we needed to get through and a parking attendant would say, yes, so go ahead. Do you have a pin? Um, but I think the very first one I got out of the ABC pin, uh, I was out on Mirror Lake where they had the uh, medal ceremonies in the evening. A beautiful, beautiful, idyllic lake, the center of Lake Placid. And uh, I saw uh, a gentleman doing a stand-up. And so we waited politely. And uh, it turned out he was from the BBC. And so, wow. I was 25 then. I was pretty wet behind the ears. but. Um, so that's a special one. I have a couple that uh, friends of mine gave me from Sapporo in 72. But I guess uh, the bulk of the collection is from Lake Placid on, and I treasure them. Wow, that is amazing. What an incredible history. So You've worked on so many different events and everything, and I wonder if they all become a blur, or as you said, you can name the time and place where you got most of these pins. You must have an incredible memory bank up there in your brain to be able to catalog all of that information and keep everything straight from all that you've done in your career. Well, I I, I guess uh, I, I have many shortcomings, of course, but I do have a good memory. And uh, I, I have filed those away. I, I'm a, a people person and uh, I love people. I'm, uh, I hope, engaging and enthusiastic and, also, and a good listener. Um, and I make friends quickly. And um, so all of these experiences, particularly at games time, go into a special place that I hold them in my heart. Um, you know, it's it's funny uh, when you talk about how the Olympic Games breathe. You know, most of us came out there, uh, sort of the hired help to work for SLOC, uh, about at the two-year before mark. So we all had a chance to work together, get things done, prepare for the pre-Olympics or the test events that were in 2001. Sometimes, you know, in the early going, it drags on, and uh, even though you're busy, uh, but when that opening ceremony happens, you shift into another gear and you process it differently. And, and you know, it's, it, it may be very difficult to fully explain, particularly to somebody who's not had the experience, but um, I think that's part of why people are attracted on the production side, working at the games, why the Olympics is such an incredible elixir. You know, it's, it's just beautiful and um, it's moving. Um, so there, 
there are a lot of wonderful memories that I hold dear. Well, you mentioned that you started very young. You were 25 years old when you did the games in Lake Placid in 1980. And that leads me to ask this question. How did you get into commentating? How did you get into this business? And then following that, how did you eventually end up in Salt Lake? Not just announcing, but also helping facilitate all of the sport production there with Christy Nicolay. Yeah. Um, sort of the short story on my background was I was a cross-country ski racer out of Vermont. And uh, I made the junior national team in 1970. And then I went out to a small division one school in Durango, Colorado called Fort Lewis College. You may, you may have heard it. Uh, it, it. We skied against all the big boys, Utah, Denver, New Mexico, Colorado, Dartmouth, Middlebury, et cetera. And around my junior year, uh, because I think the, I, I love to imitate voices and my coach uh, uh, said, could you call the radio station every Sunday night with a little voicer about how the weekend went? And I've said, well, I'd love to. Um, well, ultimately, that led my senior year to doing sideline reporting for radio at college football. When I got out of college and I called my skiing career quits, um, I um, got a job at the radio station, KIUP, in Durango. And simultaneously to that, I became the Colorado Stringer for uh, KOAT. Action 7 News in Albuquerque. And of course, this was pre-videotape. So I shot film in a little Bell and Howell film camera, sent it down by Continental Trailways to Albuquerque. They put it in the soup, and then I'd voice it over on the telephone. So um, I was really lucky to have uh, these couple of years where I had uh, because I was studying physical education, and um, the world of broadcasting appealed to me, uh, and I used to look up to Bob Beatty so much when he did Wide World of Sports shows back in the day with Frank Gifford and Jim McKay. Um, but I did, I learned to write, and um, I learned to interview. And so all of those things came into play, and I had done a little bit of public address announcing during those years, and uh, and I had moved to Minneapolis to uh, import cross-country skis from Norway. I spent about 12 years there, and I loved it, and one day at the company I was working for, I got a call from Chuck Howard at ABC Sports, who was Rune's right-hand man, Rune Arlich, and uh he said, uh, we understand you have had a little experience in announcing ski racing. And I said, yeah, I've done uh, some cross-country World Cups and some national championships. And he said, would you uh, be willing to fly to New York and meet with us? And, of course, it took me about one second to say, uh, yes. <laughs> when do you want me? So uh, I went to New York. I had the interview with Rune and Chuck Howard. And tell you the truth, uh, completely intimidated, uh, totally scared, but trying not to show it. Um, so having that thing with ABC uh, was, was very significant. Then ESPN started. I worked two games for them um, in Sarajevo and in Calgary. And ESPN was just brand new, so I got in the ground floor on that. But it, it, a lot of people don't always start thinking I'm going to be 
an expert commentator on skiing or I'm going to help produce this or that. Um, things just happen, and I was receptive to them. And, you know, I was willing to take some risks uh, to, uh, to do these things. But, you know, it's, it's turned out well. And, and you know, the, the saying of follow your dreams is, is particularly apt in my case. All right. So you followed your dreams. You end up with Christy and uh, in Salt Lake about two years out. So why don't you give us a little bit of the background as to what your role specifically was there in the organizing committee in uh, the sport presentation or the sport production side? Yeah, well, just like Christy in her interview, I had a well, it would be a precursor to a Zoom meeting. Uh, I I was on the phone from uh, Vermont and uh, I talked to uh, a number of people. Uh, and initially, I was hired to be the lead producer uh, for snow sports. And uh, that is a job that uh, would work right under Christie, like ice sports. There was a lead producer for that. And, and in the chain of things, those people uh, direct the venue producers and all that. Um, and you know, I, uh, I immediately accepted and moved out there and got a rental in Park City. And I'd been to Salt Lake many, many times because I, I was a coach for the U.S. ski team, which I, I didn't mention from 80 to 84. I did work for the ski team in addition to broadcasting. But um, so as we started gearing up for things, uh, some of the sport directors saying, oh, can Peter announce uh, – you know, cross-country skiing, or could Peter announce jumping, or whatever. And um, we had a policy that those lead positions, uh, and there were only two, as I said, for ice and snow, um, really required a full-time commitment. And Christy was incredibly awesome and flexible in all this, so um, someone else was hired in my place as a lead producer, and Christy was able to create a position, associate producer. And basically, my mission was to scope and vet uh, public address announcers, uh, really from around the world, and make recommendations to Christy, with Christy being the ultimate person that signed off on it. But as you will recall, um, French is also an official language of the IOC. So we were looking not only at um, English speakers, uh, which included a host and an expert and a field talent and somebody else in the booth that would do French translation. So our needs were huge. And we cast a very broad net around, uh, and around the world uh, to bring people. And our, really, our mandate was to try to bring the best people you possibly can. I mean, we went to the NHL, and we had recommendations from some of their talent. Um, we went to the International Federations, the IFs, and they had recommendations of people. And, um, you know, in an effort to, to uh, do the French part and some of it more cost-effective, we did bring some people from France. But I had a big casting call for a couple of days at the Queen Elizabeth Hotel in Montreal. And uh, we end up hiring a number of very, very good people uh, on the basis of that, and including 
uh, gentleman who did the French in hockey, Michel Lacroix, who was the voice of the uh, fabled Montreal Canadiens. So um, it was really fun, Christian. And uh, it just, I never thought it would take two years, but it did. And I think we got it right. Well, I think you certainly got it right. Uh, my recollection of attending some of those events, well, I thought the sport presentation was totally awesome and the announcers were great. But I do have one question, and this is more out of personal curiosity. So you get a start with ABC, which is a broadcaster, and you also work for ESPN, another broadcaster. But then for the games in Salt Lake, you're doing in-venue PA or public address announcing. So what are some of the differences between doing work for television and doing work in the venue as a public address announcer? You know, that's a that's a marvelous question and, and really quite astute of you to ask it, because I, I think a lot of people feel the skills can be very interchangeable. And in fact, some of them transmit uh, translate very well. But I think when you're announcing for TV and you're in you're a guest in somebody's living room on the set. Um, you probably are not as big uh, in projection, in phrasing, in those kinds of things as you are uh, when you get into a public address sort of format. Um, and there's a lot more projection. You know, I've, I never used to lose my voice, for example, announcing television. But on occasion, I would lose my voice doing public address. And that in itself says something about it. But, but they're quite different. Um, and where a national broadcaster, which is a broadcast uh, affiliate here in the States, um, you can perhaps at times be a little more biased in, in what you say, because you're doing it for an American audience. But when you're a public address announcer and you're doing a sport, uh, and I think this is critical, you, you have to be without bias and treat the Norwegians the same as the Finns and the Swedes and the Slovenians, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that was something we really worked on in hockey uh, because these were big arena voices from the Philadelphia Flyers, from the New York Rangers, uh, Canadians. They're used to being, you know, the delivery is, and now the lineup for the Philadelphia Phillies or the Philadelphia Flyers and your U.S. team. And you can understand very quickly that when you're doing something for spectators in a multinational format, it's quite different. But I think that answers your question, and uh, it was a good one. I, I like that. Well, I've got another question to satisfy my curiosity here. What about the differences in the sports? You know, you just mentioned hockey, or you take a sport like basketball or American football here in the U.S., Usually the public address announcer is fairly quiet while the play is going on. And then they may say something at the conclusion of it. So in basketball, if someone makes a shot, they announce who made the shot. 
two points. If someone commits a foul, they announce who committed the foul, how many fouls they have. But otherwise, they're quiet except for during breaks. But what's that for? What's it like for something like skiing? You know, where it's not it's not like um, sports that Americans typically think of, like Major League Baseball or basketball or football, where you have plays run. It's just something that continuously is happening. And so there aren't necessarily plays. I find it interesting that you would lose your voice. You know, sometimes when you think of a public address announcer and these typical American environments, they're not actually talking all that much as compared to a television announcer who is actually describing the plays, a play-by-play person as they happen. So yeah, I'm curious if you could just take me or you could just kind of walk me through that a little bit. You know, what's it like announcing some of these, uh, what we would call them in the States, more Olympic sports Sure, sure. And another really uh, good thought by you. Um, So uh, to preface this, I would say that. um, So I did the PA announcing at the Calgary games as well as TV for ESPN. I did it in Calgary for cross country skiing. And we were given we had one brief meeting. In downtown Calgary, I was given a box of cassette tapes. Here's your French translator and have a good time. And we did. And that was the first games that I was at that they had a big screen. So there's an evolution in this process. All of a sudden in a sport like cross-country skiing, when you send them out and you may see them lap through the stadium once, but uh, oftentimes, you know, you, you miss a lot of the race. I saw very quickly that you could really call the whole race to this crowd. And uh, because I like play by play, I was able to do that. So, you know, there are little gains in, in this area as we go along. But from my perspective, the really, we made a big jump under Christie at Salt Lake 2002. Um, I mean, sport production sport presentation to me is almost sports theater where you try to capture uh, some great storylines, some compelling and heroic action. And you try to give every country their due. And again, I think that's very important. Um, But so in skiing, whether it's alpine skiing, where you may have, you know, 60 people going down, there's time to talk, do bios, work in a color play-by-play announcer, look at replays, because we have the world feed that we're watching. That's the same feed everybody else is getting at home. Uh, and um, it's rich with moments that lend themselves to storytelling. Well, uh, of course, you know that Uh, every event breathes a little differently. Um, And uh, for example, figure skating, Uh, you have introductions, then they lay out for the entire thing. Then they give the marks, the scores. Cross-country skiing, you know, in a 30 or 50K race, you may have two or three hours of racing. That's a lot of time to talk. Um, And so... um, yeah, I, I view them as two uh, different skills that have some very much some common links, but uh, they are 
quite different, you know. And they're great TV announcers that wouldn't be so good as a PA announcer and vice versa. Right. So as you're going through the vetting, you're looking at the resumes or the CVs or you're listening to the tapes of the professionals. So everybody that you're talking to is probably already really good. So what is it that sets apart a person that is really good from a person that is ideal for the Salt Lake 2002 games when it comes to announcing or color commentary, sideline reporting, et cetera? Yeah, um, well, I, I, it's complex because not all of the criteria is subjective. You know, I mean, it's like saying, did you like Howard Cosell? Half, half of the country loathed him and another half thought he was just an incredible announcer. Um, but uh, I think, I mean, this, this stumps me a little bit, and I'm not really often stumped, but um, of course we look for good voices. Of course we look for sport-specific experience. Has this done guy done or gal done freestyle skiing at a past World Cups or World Championships or whatever? Is is he known to the international governing body? That can be a very big help, um, particularly sort of carving through some of the political uh, barriers. You know, I mean, you know who to go to. Uh, you know, uh, uh, the international the IFs are very important. You know, um, but. Uh, the other thing is to uh, a willingness uh, to be part of a team and not be a diva, not uh, um, a willingness to accept the realities that um, things as simple as being on time or, I mean, they, so there's a lot of that kind of criteria, you know? And once we made our picks, uh, and not everybody came back after the pregames, most of them did, but not everyone. Um, once we got into the Olympic cycle that final year, we did something that I think is quite unique. And I've not heard of it before, although it may have been done in fairness. But we, you know, we had several, you heard Christy talk about workshops where we had announcer workshops we brought people in we went into a booth in salt lake and i would listen to them uh we'd put up some video from nagano 1998 and i'd hear them commentate you know and and i was uh you know in that role i slide into being a teacher it was not really being a critic but being you know this was great and in at this thing, I, I I would have liked to seen a little bit more. At the end of the day, whether we're doing TV or public address to different audiences, a lot of it is about sitting around a campfire. It's about telling stories, and who has who has the chops to tell those stories well? Who uh, has good pronunciations of all the names? I mean, it is. We 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 always made a policy that you you must know how to pronounce everybody's name that's in the games. I, I think we owe them that. After all, you know, we've talked a lot about this very inside stuff of of the games, but indeed, they're all about the athletes and honoring them and the sacrifices they make 
sometimes maybe coming from a little mountain town in in northern Italy, uh, 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 not gifted of rich circumstances, and and they've worked their tail off to come to an Olympic Games. I feel really strong. We we owe them that, you know. Uh, so that's another part of it. So it's talent, good storytelling, willingness to function as a part of a team. I have to come back to this little testing thing that you did in the shack. Was that prior to selecting them? Was it part of the vetting process or was this with people that you had already selected to work the games and you were just trying to hone skills? Yeah, at that point, it was really honing skills. Um, we were t- trying to take a good product and make it better. And I, I, I think um, it would have been easy enough to say, you know, these guys are good and here's their resume. And, you know, I mean, they've already done three Olympics and they got those jobs on their own. But I mean, uh, we just wanted to do the best we could. And there was, um, I mean, under under Christie's leadership and the way she looked at things, um, we always looked, is there a better way? And, you know, and one thing I, I remember talking to the late Jake Burton from Burton Snowboards, who untimely passing within the last year, we talked a little bit about Nagano and snowboarding. That was its introduction. And uh, I'll never forget, he said, uh, you know, it, it, it was a good event. It was fine. But he said it looked like it was put on by skiers for snowboarders. And I thought, uh, touche, that, that's a, a very good point. And I never forgot that little bit of pearl of wisdom that Jake said, because he loves snowboarding. You know, he, he created the genre almost, you know. And uh, so um, the, other, the other thing was be true to the sports culture, you know. Um, so we all spent a lot of time learning. Um, but the team that Christie had was so effective in, in working together and just gelled. Um, I often say that the Olympics bring the best out in everybody. We tend to have a uh, a bigger heart, more empathy, um, and and understand the meaning of the Olympic creed, where participation is perhaps more important than the conquering. And um, I, I just I, I think it's it's a very special environment. Well, let's talk about that environment for a little bit. You know, what was it like? What were what were your surroundings during the games? Were you inside? Were you outside? Were you near the field of play? Were you up above in a box looking at it from a distance? You know, what were some of the logistics there? And then on top of that, you've got the commentator information system and things that can help feed you information, helpful information to help you do your job. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the environment that you're working in? Uh, when you're announcing the events in the games. Yeah, certainly. I, and and we may want to talk a, a little bit on the other side of this question regarding the opening and closing ceremonies, because there I was in a, a, a special booth at Rice-Eccles. Um, <clears throat> but um, so every day that I wasn't announcing ski jumping or cross-country skiing, I had a couple of days where I was able to go to other venues. And that's something even now, Christy had me do in Rio. I work on the cycling venue, but 
she sent me around as uh, her eyes and ears. Uh, if anybody has any questions, can I help at all? Are there specific announcing questions? You know, we had superb facilities. I mean, uh, cross country, uh, of course, the, the beautiful building at Soldier Hollow in Heber uh, was custom built for that. Uh, there were indoor restrooms. There were meeting rooms. There were, you know, places to eat. Um, and uh, at, so and the workspace was very good. Um, and, and basically, you know, you arrive early. Uh, I went to Pyeongchang, and, and uh, I remember, you know, being up about 4.30 so I could get a 5.30 shuttle with the rest of our team. I did Alpine in Korea, um, and these are long days. But again, having to be on time, have your credential there. Then getting into the venue, clearing all the security, and, and settling in at your workstation. I have both tremendous... Uh, uh, notes in my head. I also have a lot of uh, cards that I uh, have particular pertinent notes that I want to say. And then you have the fabulous CIS, Commentator Information System, as you noted. And these are, I, I often say, if you were an announcer, but you had never done alpine skiing before, you could sound pretty smart if you could just read the data off the CIS. I, uh, it has hometown, it has age, it has parents' names, siblings, best personal result, all that kind of stuff. I mean, it, it's really, and the result of that is a tremendous work effort for people that put all that data in, um, but that's great. Um, and then you, you know, each day your producer plans the show. We have a run of show. People might be interested from the very moment the gates open, we're on. Because when you think of it, we're the voices of, well, the organizing committee, all the volunteers who do extraordinary work, couldn't be done without them. Um, you have a really, uh, 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 an important job in representing a very big and important constituency and doing it the way they would like it done. Um, so we welcome people in. We have entertainment. We have music. We have, uh, here's the history of the giant slalom. Um, Christy spoke about making those pieces for the big screen. I mean, the big screen and its adaptation that we have is, has made things really valuable. We have a field talent who could go out with their own camera and interview somebody, a coach or whatever. And, and those add to our storytelling. And then, then it's the producer to call the shots. And, you know, he said, Peter, you know, 30 seconds away from going into, you know, starting and, and you do it. And the other thing is, uh, uh, again, in Salt Lake, we did just English and French. But in Athens, where I did cycling, we did English, French, and Greek, the host language. And announcers, and what I talked about, kind of criteria that you, you sort of see in a person, um, was the ability not to hog the microphone. The show is not about any of us as individuals. It's what we do collectively. So I think that's, that's a very important point.
Okay, well, let's come to the ceremonies. As you mentioned, the ceremonies are a little bit different. So why don't you tell us about announcing the ceremonies in Salt Lake? Well, uh, this was interesting. And uh, it was about, I'll say, two to three weeks before the Olympics were, so we lighted the torch with the opening ceremonies. And so I had done uh, for for Christy a number of PA announcing events, uh, several with Mitt, where I introduced Mitt, uh, and like the uniform rollout at the Gallivan Plaza. A lot of media, a lot of people there, and, and I helped with that. I did several things like that. Um, so, so, you know, they, and they, they knew my background. So, um, one day I was sitting at my desk and I got a call from Don Misher, who was the executive producer of the opening ceremonies. I believe that was his title. Um, and he said, uh, we hear you've got a decent voice and, uh, and you've done this stuff before. Well, I'd never done an opening ceremonies, but I, you know, I've been to a lot of Olympic games. And um, he said, would you mind going over in the next day or two to KSL? And I'm going to get on an ISDN line and I'm going to fax you some copy to read. And, you know, it was basically like, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the opening ceremonies of the 2018 Olympic Winter Games. That kind of stuff. You know, it went well. Uh, and I was absolutely ebullient that, uh, my name had even been considered because there's so many good, uh, voice talents out there. And lo and behold, a few days later, they said, you're our man. So on top of everything else I had to do, which was actually rather daunting, um, I, I then started, uh, planning for rehearsals and the secrecy and all that is, is really fascinating. Uh, I, I, you know, uh, I was getting scripts and I had to sign confidentiality clauses and, uh, these things would be delivered kind of in secret at my desk every day. And then, I don't know, about five days before the game started, we started doing the rehearsals at Rice Eccles and they were often quite late at night, like arrival at 10, 10 p.m. So I, I'm looking back, we were we were practicing at, you know, 11, midnight. Um, and, um, and, you know, with rehearsals, you do, you can do sections of the show, you know, so uh, it wasn't so daunting if you broke it up. Um, and every day, I, along with a French translator who had done the games in Atlanta, um, we got this book, and it was numbered page by page, basically, and there was just one thing on the page. You know, it was, ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States, or something like that, and uh, each country. And, and uh, Don had a producer that would cue, go Peter English, number 1A. And um, so we were led very nicely. Because the one thing I can tell you is, is doing 
any kind of ceremonies like this are, they're really powerful. And there is no margin for error. I don't especially like that. Uh, I mean, you can't say, oh, sorry, I meant to say this. Uh, you can't do that. Um, so you go slow and be very precise. Peter Coyote came in and did some uh, voiceovers. Uh, and uh, he was he's an incredible voice talent. Uh, but uh, we did it. And uh, I felt, I, if offered, I had to do it. And I was so happy because I'm an only child of, they were then very elderly parents. My dad was about 100 when I did it. And uh, they, they could hear my voice. And it was meaningful for them on a personal level. I think the, the, the time I got close to being overcome with emotion, but I, I, I couldn't do it, was when the 9-11 flag came in. It was, you know, it was the first games, as you know, after 9-11. And, you know, we lost a lot of things on that day, including a measure of innocence. And uh, it was uh, extremely powerful to see the firemen, police, the athletes coming in with that. Um, so, uh, but I, we both up in the booth were able to hang on. We had great producers. It was it was a thrill of a lifetime. I don't know if I'll ever do it again, but once is even enough. It was just marvelous. Well, it's an incredible story, Peter. And I have to give you major props for being the first person on our podcast to use the word ebullient. So I love it. <laughs> Thank you. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> now, one last thing I have to ask you about with respect to announcing is when we think of professional or collegiate sports here in the U.S., when you look at the broadcasters or you look at the public address announcers, the PA announcers or the color commentators and the sideline reporters, in some cases, they have worked together for a very long period of time and they've had opportunity, therefore, to build some chemistry. So I'm curious from your perspective, what is the importance of chemistry amongst your team and how do you go about building that chemistry when you don't have a lot of time to do it? Well, I think chemistry is a very, very important thing. And um, having been a ski coach, I, I also coached at Harvard for six years after I left the, after the para games were over. Um, I think chemistry is one of those things that um, is best occurred if it occurs nat naturally. Um, so it's kind of an organic thing. Um, so again, as, as previously noted, we, you know, we hired good people um, with good values and good voices. Um, and um, uh, But this ability to work with the team, I really don't think it can be understated. Um, you know, you want each of us try to be uh, part of the platform, part of the oak uh, of the, the standard, if you will, of of announcing and all that. And the producers that work behind us, music directors, videotape, uh, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, we worked a lot with, with music. For example, music can, as you so well know, can really stir the soul, you know? Um, and 
in a long distance race, you know, in a cross country, we might even, we might even go with some classical cuts, for example, you know, um, again, that, that build the drama. Um, but that just allows the spectators to get in. It, it allows host broadcast to get those really key emotional shots of the spectators if they feel it. You know, um, I remember saying, because I, I went to the closing ceremonies at Calgary as a spectator, and as the day, the evening wore on and we were just about done, the floodgates of tears opened in my eyes, and I wasn't quite sure, and it took me a long time to wonder why I was so profoundly affected. But I, I think it was that I had witnessed two weeks of beauty and grace and humanity um, that still, as I speak, the hair on my arms stands up. Um, it, it's more than a punchline for me. I, I believe this with all my heart and soul. And um, so um, we had enough time to build that camaraderie. And and Christy did, as uh, I remember noted, we we had a thing at Sundance. There was whitewater rafting. We spent a lot of time together. I mean, the thing I tell young people is, you're coming into this. It may be your first games, and this person that you don't know that's working beside you, ten twenty years down the road, you're going to call him one of your best friends ever. Um, because you're bonding in the trenches, everybody keeps their eye on the prize of 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 doing a competent job um, and, and giving the athletes um, their uh, tremendous due for what they've achieved. Well, Peter, I feel like for the last, I don't know, 40 or 45 minutes, I have basically sat through a masterclass in public address announcing, which was probably not your intention. So you're probably thinking, well, when is he going to ask me some questions about my games time memories? I've been asking so many questions about broadcasting or public address announcing. Well, that's okay. That's okay. I, I you know, for me, the time has flown by and it's been great. And I, I really salute you for archiving all of this uh, material. Um, I think it'll be particularly important because, you know, we're all, I follow Olympic news and I follow what's happening with Salt Lake bids. And um, I think it extremely likely that the Olympics will return at some point to Salt Lake City because it was done so well, um, uh, you know, and um, that's a tribute to everybody who worked there. Well, before we wrap up with our final segment today, are there any stories aside from your goosebump moment, which we'll save to the last that you want to share? Now you've already told several, you said that you had hairs raising on your arms. I was feeling the same way as you were telling some of the stories you were telling me today. I could feel that passion. I could feel that emotion, but are there any other things that you wanted to reminisce about before we get to our final assignments? Well, so athletically, you know, I did cross country and jumping and, and there was a pretty special moment in cross country skiing when a Canadian, Becky Scott, who had married Justin Wadsworth, who was an American, uh, got a bronze medal. And uh, it was historic for North American women, hadn't been done before uh, for the women. 
Bill Koch had won a silver in 1976 in men's cross-country skiing. And uh, my announcer was a very good Norwegian. My co-announcer was a very good Norwegian, Shell Eric Christensen, who does a lot of work overseas. And I said, Shell, if you give me five minutes and he could take it. There was no problem and handle it fine. I said, I've got to go down there and say hello and congratulations to Becky on her historic bronze. I mean, so I skedaddled down there and I guess I had enough of a credential to get uh, in the mix zone area and I congratulated her. There were hugs and tears. Uh, we called Bill Koch on the telephone uh, so he could hear about it. Of course, the story doesn't end there. It ends about two years later because ultimately she won the gold medal because the gold and silver um, were disqualified for use of uh, performance enhancing uh, methods, uh, as it was uh, told. And uh, so she went on to actually be a gold medalist. And that was a very, very powerful moment for me. And and looking with my ski coach's hat on, it was a very powerful moment because Becky was very good friends with the women on the U.S. team. And uh, if you follow cross-country skiing, uh, Salt Lake 2002 was the beginning of Keegan Randall and her breakthrough era. Um, all the way, it carried us on. It made us believe we could do it. And then that night in Pyeongchang in 2018 on a hillside there, Jesse Diggins and Keegan Randall finally won a gold medal for cross-country skiing, the first time ever for an American cross-country skier to win the gold in Olympics. It was really powerful. And I often thought, and that night I thought in Pyeongchang, that the birth of this very likely could have happened with Becky Scott, because Becky made us believe that it could be done by a North American or a Canadian in her case. Um, uh, you know, heretofore, we were so psyched out so much of the time by Scandinavians um, and, you know, thinking they had the keys to the kingdom. But we learned to do it our way, a uniquely American way in the athletic development and, and all of that. Um, so Salt Lake, I think, was, was uh, the beginning of the building blocks for that. So that was a a very interesting story. I, I've never done it again where I ran out of the booth to congratulate somebody, uh, but I knew the announcing was in good hands, and I really mean that. All right. Well, Peter, these stories have been wonderful. I really appreciate you sharing all of them. Let's go ahead and go to our final segment. We're going to start here with the music question. So is there a particular song that reminds you of your time in Salt Lake. Yes. Um, very easy for me to say. And they're both by John Williams. Um, Summon the Hero and uh, Call of the Champions are such profoundly beautiful, soaring orchestral uh, productions that I, again, I, ha I have uh, my heartstrings are being pulled when I hear those songs. It brings me back, as music does, in an instant to special moments in our life. And, and I think John Williams is, is absolutely masterful. Well, I totally agree. John Williams is absolutely masterful. So thank you for adding John to our list. Listeners can find the songs 
on our Spotify playlist. Now for the food, which hopefully you'll enjoy shortly as I'm keeping you from your dinner. Is there a particular restaurant that you'd like to frequent <laughs> in Salt Lake? Yeah, I got a couple. Uh, three in Salt Lake and one up in Park City. Um, so for business meetings, I used to love, and I don't know if it's still there. I used to go to Lambs. On, uh was a, a block or so away, uh, about across the street from maybe where ZCMI was. It was a lovely little, I think it was called Lamb's Cafe. And it was, it harkened back to the old wood and walnut of something in New York City. Uh, a lot of business people went there. I loved that place. On the flip side, uh, spent a lot of time at the Red Iguana, as did a lot of your guests. And then, and I went there with Tom Kelly and his wife, Carol, to unwind after the opening ceremonies. I quickly did something with uh, one of the sports guys at KSL about the experience, and we went to Hires Root Beer. And, you know, as a Vermonter, one of the things I learned was the, about the fry sauce. And man, oh man, I'm missing the fry sauce. So I went and had a big vanilla shake, some fries, and probably a double cheeseburger to celebrate the opening ceremonies, and then it went off successfully. And that's a moment I won't forget either. Oh, and El, El Chabasco up in Park City. I, I darkened the door there a fair amount, but these are ones I think other guests have probably said. There are a lot of good restaurants in both Park City and Salt Lake. Well, that's very true. And all of those recommendations are fantastic. And three cheers for the fry sauce. As indeed. I was saying, indeed, I'm a huge <laughs> fan of hires. I also love Red Iguana. It's my, it's my favorite Mexican place. Uh, Chubasco in Park City was nominated by Chris Crowley, by the way. It's another great place. And Lamb's Grill. I, I don't know if it's still around or not. I need to check. It was anyway, wonderful. Wonderful. All incredible recommendations. So we've talked about music. We've talked about food. You've already given us some really good goosebump moments. Do you have one more to send us off? Well, perhaps more of the same. But, um, you know, I, I, when I say that everybody's a stakeholder in the Olympic Games, uh, spectators, the pin traders, uh, of course, the athletes, that goes without saying the coaches, the volunteers, the people that, you know, even pay their own way to come, pay their lodging and, and to work at the games is, is pretty special. Um, but uh, the games are more needed now in our culture and our society globally than ever before. Um, are there problems occasionally at games? Certainly. Um, are they tried to be solved quickly? Absolutely. Um, does the good outweigh the bad? Absolutely. Certainly. There is so much beauty and joy uh, that comes out of the Olympic movement that um, I, I, I just cannot imagine a life lived differently. And I feel tremendously blessed. And to the people I work with, um, They've all been an inspiration. Well, I feel tremendously blessed to have you join us for an hour and share these amazing stories. I really, really appreciate it. Peter, if people want to reconnect with you, if they want to learn more about the work that you're doing now, 
or they want to share some of the stories of Salt Lake with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, I'm on Facebook, of course, Peter Graves. Uh, I also uh, am on Instagram under Peter Graves Olympic Sports. And I'd love to hear from anybody um, out there, especially if you want to talk the Olympics or skiing. And I encourage you all, if you want to be a part of this, you can be. Volunteer. Send in a resume. It's too good an opportunity to be missed. Well, thank you so much, Peter. And yes, we've got several games editions coming up who could use the help. And here in the States, we've got LA 2028. And hopefully soon, you know, perhaps fingers crossed, Salt Lake will host again. So, Peter, thank you so much. Listeners, please like and subscribe to our podcast and we'll join you again soon. Thanks so much, Peter. Thank you. It's been a joy to be with you.